0: Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the perversely optimistic podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on January the 12th, 2017. And I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined as always by the always
1: happy Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland Francis King Carey School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland.
0: Well, Frank, a special treat this week on Twill because we greet uh, Tim Jost, emeritus professor at the Washington Washington and Lee University School of Law. Tim's a member of the Institute of Medicine and a consumer liaison representative to the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. He is co-author of the casebook Health Law, used widely throughout the United States to teach health law, a similarly titled Treatise and hornbook. Among his many fantastic books is the classic Healthcare at Risk, a critique of the consumer-driven movement, which I think will be going into a new edition very soon because of what's going to be happening. And he is the author of just too many articles and chapters to even count. Many of us believe that he's the leading health law and policy academic of his generation. It's really a thrill to have you on the pod, Tim. Thank you.
2: And and good to see you and
0: and Frank again. Well, some of us are about to start the second week of teaching health law courses. And, you know, it's been a bit of a struggle, but one's beginning to get comfortable with the changes that started rolling in around 2010. But just trying to wrap one's head around what may be happening in Next weeks, months, or years seems like a Herculean task. So uh, that's why we have such a special guest. And so Tim, uh, sort of trying to follow, I guess, a rough timeline of, of of where we were and where we're going. Can we start with talking a little bit about the current state of of health law after healthcare reform? And maybe get your reflections on the last seven years or so, the successes and the failures.
2: Well, yes, a lot has happened in the last seven years since the adoption of the Affordable Care Act. Um, It's had some remarkable successes. Uh, It has covered uh, 20 million people. Um, It has reduced uninsured rates to historic lows. Uh, We've covered uh, 12 to 14 million people through the Medicaid expansions. There are uh, over almost 12 million people now signed up for coverage for 2017. Uh, Most of those people are getting financial assistance through the premium tax credits to make coverage affordable to them, most of them for under uh, $75 a month. Uh, and uh, a majority of them are getting cost-sharing reduction payments, which also reduce uh, often significantly their deductibles and coinsurance and out-of-pocket limits. Um, But even for the millions of Americans who get coverage through their employer, there have also been some important developments, um, which they may or may not have noticed or may or may not have attributed to the Affordable Care Act. Uh, Two of my sons were covered under the provision that allowed coverage of adult children up to age 26. Um, I got a flu shot this year without having to pay for it uh, because of the preventive services requirement. Uh, Many women are getting contraceptives um, uh, through that requirement. Um, The um, uh, Affordable Care Act uh, put an end to annual and lifetime limits for everyone with private insurance coverage. Um, and also put a cap on out-of-pocket expenditures. Um, and so the coverage that many people have through their employers is significantly better than what was true before the uh, the Affordable Care Act went into place. Uh, people who opposed the Affordable Care Act predicted that it would drive up insur- uh, health care costs and insurance costs. Um, in fact, um, healthcare costs have grown at historically low rates for most of the time the Affordable Care Act has been in place. Uh, They've bumped up uh, in the last year or two, but that has been primarily attributable just to more people having access to health care, not due to increases in prices or in in per-person expenditures. Um, And also there was prediction that many people would lose their jobs or be transferred to part-time jobs, and job growth has continued uh, to be strong through uh, Throughout the the time that uh, since 2010, um, and um, the the record is mixed with respect to part time jobs, but the uh, and on the whole it looks like that has not been uh, a major issue. Um, And so there are a lot of good things that have happened in the last uh, seven years because of the Affordable Care Act. Now, there have also been some problems that have developed. Um, uh, uh, There's been some instability in the individual insurance market. Um, the uh, uh, the uh, particularly in two thousand and seventeen premiums went up very dramatically in some markets, although they dropped in Indiana, I should point out. Um, But uh, in most states, they did increase, and in some states, they increased quite dramatically. Uh, The Obama administration argues that that's primarily due to underpricing in the first uh, couple of years and to uh, the phasing out of the reinsurance program. Um, but it is nonetheless a problem, particularly for people who are not getting the uh, the premium tax credit assistance. A lot of people remain uninsured. Um, uh, it was hoped that more people would sign up, but it's proved difficult to, to reach people uh, to get them to sign up. Uh, and of course, a lot of people are ineligible for coverage through the marketplaces because they are not legally here in the United States. Um, cost sharing has gone up, uh, and, uh, for many people who are insured either through their employer or through the individual market, um, the uh, uh, the costs uh, uh, for uh, deductibles and for co-insurance and co-payments remain a significant barrier to getting access to care. Um, I think maybe the biggest failure, though, has been the inability of um, the administration to sell the Affordable Care Act and the uh, superior ability of the opponents of the Affordable Care Act to um, uh, convince the public that it is a disaster or a failure, as our president-elect keeps saying. Um, I think that, uh, well, there's been a, literally hundreds of millions of dollars spent attacking the Affordable Care Act. No private product could have gone into the market facing the the uh, the the kind of opposition uh, advertising that the Affordable Care Act has has faced. Um, And there's just been a tremendous amount of misinformation. Now, there are some people who have actually been harmed by the Affordable Care Act to the extent that their premiums have gone up, they can't get the kind of cheap coverage that they used to get, uh, and they are legitimately uh, disgruntled. Uh, But I think most Americans who've been helped by the Affordable Care Act probably don't fully realize it. And most Americans, uh, many Americans also attribute problems to the Affordable Care Act that are, in fact, simply uh, the nature of our health care system. Employment-sponsored insurance deductibles were going up before the Affordable Care Act. Uh, they continue to go up. It's not because of the Affordable Care Act. So there have been some successes and there have been some failures. Um, and and the fact that, that the, the, the country has never come behind it in a bipartisan way as it eventually did under uh, with respect to Medicare or Medicaid or CHIP or other programs uh, that uh, have improved our healthcare system I think has been a significant problem.
0: Even yesterday, Tim, in uh, the President-elect's news conference. Uh, the, uh, the rhetoric uh, strikes me as quite amazing, um, the use of the words disaster, uh, catastrophe. Is, is there any parallel here to uh, the introduction of earlier welfare or entitlement programs that have led to this kind of uh, rhetorical uh, rejoinder?
2: Well, I mean, when Medicare and Medicaid were adopted in the 1960s, there was certainly opposition to them, although there was much more bipartisan support than there uh, than there has ever been for the Affordable Care Act, but there were certainly—I mean, the the AMA opposed it, and doctors threatened to boycott it, and um, and there were—you know—there were problems getting um, getting people on board. Uh, but I think people quickly realized the advantages of the program, and. The politics of the country were not nearly as divided along along partisan uh, divides as they are now. Um, so I really don't. I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't remember the '60s uh, uh, as well as I do the, the the recent history. But I I just don't think there has been a parallel uh, in in my memory of what we're what we've seen in the last few years with respect to the Affordable Care Act. Um, I also think that the president-elect, I said earlier that the American public is not very well informed. I think that the president-elect is spectacularly poorly informed with respect to the Affordable Care Act. Uh, I really don't think he has any idea what's in it. Uh, or what it does, uh, or what repealing it would entail. Um, And um, one hopes he is educable, but I think there's going to have to be a very steep learning curve uh, if he's going to uh, be prepared to to deal with the Affordable Care Act. Uh, I think his appointees uh, understand better uh, what it is and what it does. um, And, uh, that I mean, uh, uh, the... Uh, congressman price who's been nominated for the uh, the secretaryship of of health education and welfare and and Seema vera vera who's been uh, verma who's been nominated for the cms administrator um, i uh, think that their uh, approach to the affordable care act is unfortunate but i do think they understand it better uh... but it is it is not been a disaster it's been on the whole successful and uh...
1: I just wish that we're better understood. Yes, uh, I think that your points, Tim, about the lack of public understanding and even of politician understanding are very powerful. I know that uh, Sarah Cliff has done at least one article in uh, Vox where she described individuals who were essentially completely confused as to the nature of the coverage. And there's an article in the New York Times just a few days ago about the Indiana University health system, at the very, and they talked about how well it had succeeded at implementing the Affordable Care Act. And then suddenly there was also the concern that essentially uh, people who are on the ACA uh, didn't even understand where their coverage was coming from. And my question ultimately is, you know, do you think that perhaps the courts or the serious number of legal challenges to the ACA, that they had anything to do with the uh, situation?
2: Yeah, I think that they really have. Uh, I think that there was a carefully orchestrated attempt to undermine the legitimacy of the Affordable Care Act, really from the minute it was passed, uh, when um, Virginia and, I believe, Florida filed lawsuits challenging its constitutionality. Um, There have been dozens of lawsuits uh, filed challenging, first, the constitutionality of the ACA, and then, once that was established, um, uh, 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 challenging the... um, Uh, uh, implementation of the ACA um, most of these uh, lawsuits were dismissed as essentially political stunts uh, the people who brought them had no were not in, in fact injured uh, and had no standing to bring them. Um, but a few have had some successes. The the Florida uh, Medicaid case uh, in which the Supreme Court decided that the expansion was uh, and uh, was optional with the states rather than being mandated um, uh, has led to. Um, uh, I think 19 states still not expanding Medicaid and, and um, several million people, um, two and a half million people remaining uninsured. Um, and uh, that is, I mean, literally killed people. <laughs> um, and it was based on an understanding and interpretation of the Constitution that was completely unprecedented. No court at any level had ever adopted the coercion theory that the Supreme Court uh, basically created out of the whole cloth in that case. Um, The House v. Burwell case, which is currently uh, pending on appeal, we'll see what happens to that with the Trump administration, Uh, is uh, unprecedented in that the uh, district court allowed Congress to sue the president, the administration, um, one House of Congress actually, uh, over an interpretation of an appropriation. Um, And so there have been a couple of lawsuits that have succeeded. There's just been a nationwide injunction entered uh, uh, with respect to the uh, regulation, which requires insurers to cover uh, gender transition services. Uh, But most of these lawsuits have been dismissed, and most of them were political lawsuits, and most of them were dismissed on that basis. Uh, However, uh, I think they have contributed to a, uh, a continual drumbeat about the illegitimacy of the law, the illegality of the uh, the Obama administration's implementation of the law, and that that has sunk into the public consciousness and has made people uh, actually believe that uh, the much of the law is illegitimate and much of its implementation has been uh, illegal. Um, it's going to be interesting to see. What happens with the Trump administration because uh, the president elect is threatening to take executive action uh, immediately to uh, undermine or eliminate the Affordable Care Act, and I believe that uh, it's very possible. Uh, given his understanding of, of uh, our constitutional system, that he will take some very illegal actions right from the beginning. And uh, my understanding is that there are uh, lawyers and organizations poised to challenge the legitimacy of any action the Trump administration takes. So I think that there is going to be continued to be a lot of material for law professors to teach uh, coming out of this, uh, this act and its successor.
0: We've never really had the opportunity to have a sort of a bipartisan discussion about fixing the Affordable Care Act. Have you ever seen a sort of a a credible list of of um, uh, potential reforms that in a in a different time with a less divisive Congress uh, might have uh, sort of taken us to ACA 2.0?
2: I think it's important for people to know that although the uh, Republicans have said from the beginning that this was not a bipartisan effort uh, that the democrats rammed it through um, that in fact uh, in the first place the legislation uh, was drafted based on uh, prior republican proposals i saw someone say the other day that that in fact the democrats stole the republicans plan and adopted it into law um Now that's not strictly true because I think the Affordable Care Act probably is much more regulatory and much more um, centered in the federal government and probably more expensive than a plan that Republicans would have ever adopted. But many of the ideas, the individual mandate using tax credits instead of direct provision of services, um, delegating a lot of the authority to the states, although in fact eventually the states rejected most of that authority. but uh, a lot of the um, the affordable care act really was based on Republican ideas. Uh, the other thing is up until quite late in the game, up until probably around August of 2009, there continued to be some Republican senators who were actively engaged in, uh, discussing, uh, the affordable care act. And in fact, uh, quite a number of the provisions of the affordable care act were drafted by Republican senators. Um, much of the, uh, program integrity, uh, title was uh, comes really from senator grassley um and uh and so uh it was there there, there really was some bipartisan activity at the beginning um now since then um, there has been uh, the, the parties have been very sharply divided and some housekeeping matters that could have been taken care of quite easily uh, have never uh, have never uh, occurred. And in fact, uh, the King v. Burwell case uh, before the Supreme Court is a case that could have been easily taken care of. The, the issue in that case had Congress simply said, well, what we really meant was that both the federal and, and, uh, and state exchanges could issue premium tax credits. But um, as to what could happen now, I mean, I think there's some a few things that could be done that could really help to stabilize uh, the individual insurance markets. I think that the had Clinton won and, and she taken a few uh, administrative uh, steps, I think we could have probably uh, stabilized the individual insurance markets anyway. But I think... Um, Extending the reinsurance program, paying the money that in fact was supposed to have been paid under the risk order program, continuing the cost sharing reduction payments uh, would go a long way towards stabilizing the individual market. Uh, And then I think it's mainly a question of of getting more people enrolled. Uh, I think also increasing uh, uh, financial assistance for higher-income people in the individual market, uh, maybe something more like what we do for higher-income people for employer-sponsored coverage, where there are generous tax subsidies, uh, would ease the pain that those people are are feeling and participating in the individual market. And uh, I think... Think that uh, that those actions, uh, um, of course, bipartisan uh, support for Medicaid expansion throughout the country, uh, maybe with some waivers that would come closer to what some Republican governors want. Uh, I think if those actions were combined, uh, we could solve most of the problems that uh, are being experienced because of the Affordable Care Act. Now, I should also say that in areas that I don't follow so closely, delivery reform, payment reform, there has been bipartisanship. MACRO was passed on a bipartisan basis. There's some dispute as to exactly how that's being done. Uh, but I think it's primarily with respect to the 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 uh the insurance reforms and the Medicaid reforms where there's been the most uh partisan controversy and uh, I think that's unfortunate. I think that problems with those reforms could be solved fairly simply if if we could get some cooperative activity.
1: Your point about the lack of cooperation, I think, is really foundational here um, because my sense is that the sort of Overton window in terms of conservative approaches to the healthcare system has really shifted in the past decade. I mean, Obama himself bragged about uh, putting forward a Heritage Foundation uh, type of proposal, and now we have Heritage sort of advising Trump. It doesn't seem like there's any chance of anything like Romney Care being embraced by anyone in the establishment – uh, GOP. So I guess one question there is, have you seen anything from the GOP, conservative policy wonks, etc., who might have some back channel to Tom Price and the Trump administration that would uh, be a realistic plan for the future? Or do you think that essentially the plan is to sort of unravel uh, what's happened before and let the market sort of pick up the pieces?
2: Well, I mean, I think that there there is – I think we're a long way from having – Having a single Republican proposal that could be adopted within hours to replace the ACA. But I think, you know, there have been a number of proposals from Congressman Price, from um, Congressman Ryan, recently from the House Republican Study Committee. There's some uh, proposals that have been put forward by Republican senators that have a lot of common elements, um, tax credits or maybe tax deductions, which I think are far more problematic if you... Don't have income, you don't. Tax deductions worthless, but tax credits, um, perhaps age adjusted, perhaps means tested, in some of the more liberal plans. Um, continuous coverage requirements to uh, w- that would uh, address pre-existing conditions, high risk pools. Um, uh, trying to make coverage more affordable by getting rid of some benefit mandates um Sale of insurance across state lines, which is a really bad idea, but is out there. That's essentially just deregulating insurance, not just nationally, but also with respect to the states. Um, so I think there's some ideas out there. There are ideas that um would help some people. I think they would hurt many more people. Uh I think that depending on the proposal, you know, probably somewhere between 10 and and uh and uh 30 million more people would be uninsured. Um but um they would a- address some of the issues and I think, you know, maybe those one of the one of those plans or some combination of those plans is going
1: to be adopted and then we'll see how it works Um, but in terms uh, of seeing how it works I I'm so have sort of a divided spirit in terms of, of thinking about the plans and sort of wait and see sort of, uh, with respect to them. And I just want to give one example of why. Um, I was reading Richard Mayhew's analysis of the distributional impact of the price plan. Right. And he said that his, in terms of the high-risk pools, they would block grant $2.2 million per congressional district per year to help the st- the states fund them. And I mean, two point two million dollars for roughly seven hundred thousand people. I mean, we, we really only need about five really sick people to exhaust that. Sure. And so I'm just I'm just wondering, you know, to what A extent do we? A single really
2: sick person could exhaust that. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> and and I mean, my worry is that you know uh, it, it's. By describing these as a plan, it it almost seems to give it a little bit too much credit. I don't know. I mean, I think that a lot of journalists are having a difficult time right now with the Trump administration because, you know, you have a president that might just say something that is just not true. But, you know, how do they report that? Do they say Trump says X, it's not true in the headline, or do they sort of... Uh, sort of try to walk around it. And I'm just wondering, I don't know, I mean, do you, what do you think would be, say, the minimum amount of federal funding for a risk pool that might make it a realistic plan versus just sort of like a simulacrum of a plan?
2: Yeah, I mean, the Commonwealth Fund estimated it would take $178 billion a year to cover um the people who had high cost conditions who were uninsured uh, prior to the adoption of the Affordable Care Act, that's probably high um, but uh, the one billion a year that the price plan is is was willing to give the states for two years um, is probably a little bit low um, and I think it uh, it's you know it's tens at least of billions of dollars per year. I, I, I I'm not a numbers person so I couldn't say exactly Exactly. Um, but, uh, you know, high-cost conditions are very expensive, and if you look at the high-risk cost, high, high, high risk pools, which existed in 35 states before the Affordable Care Act was passed, they covered a very small percentage of the uninsured, only about 200 and some thousand, and uh, they offered very inadequate and very expensive coverage uh, with pre-existing condition exclusions, with annual limits, with uh, high deductibles, uh, they, and, and even they then uh, states had to cap enrollment and and make waiting lists and uh, and charge premiums that were above the level of standard premiums, which certainly are, are not going to be affordable for low-income low people. So, yes, um, it's hard to take these proposals seriously as proposals that are going to um, address the uh, problems of affordability of health care for Americans. I mean, what they basically are going to do is to dramatically shift costs from the federal government to the states and shift resources from uh, low-income people to high-income people. Uh, I mean, we're talking about 300 and some billion dollars in, in tax cuts for for very high-income people uh, over the next 10 years. At the same time, we're talking about eliminating the Medicaid expansions. Matter of
1: values. Yes, I, I just to, and to add another number I saw today. I think a uh, household with over one million dollars of income will receive on average a forty nine thousand dollar tax cuts, and the four hundred tops will receive about uh, seven million dollars on average uh, per year. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a great time to be rich in America. <laughs> well, though, of course, most of
0: them are already in the cabinet. <laughs> Uh, Let's pivot, if we may, to sort of today's headlines. This morning, uh, late this morning, the Senate voted 51 to 48 to approve a budget resolution instructing House and Senate committees to begin work on legislation to repeal major portions of the ACA. Uh, So this is the beginning of the so-called reconciliation uh, process. And um, like uh, uh, many of my peers, I've always uh, made it uh, a point not to learn anything about the reconciliation process. But I remember that even like, I think, a week after the election, you had a piece on the health affairs blog explaining it. And I wondered if you could sort of lead us through this process that apparently has now begun. The way in which the budget reconciliation
2: process works is it's it's a process through which Congress can pass laws basically with respect to the revenues and outlays of the United States government with a a simple majority vote in the Senate without having to have uh, a filibuster proof 60-vote majority in the Senate and uh, it's a process that has been used quite a number of times by Congress is quite well established and uh, the way it works is you first adopt a budget resolution uh, which directs the, uh, the jurisdictional committee's finance and help in the Senate and Ways and Means and Energy and Commerce, I believe, in the House, to come up with recommendations for accomplishing a particular purpose and, and usually for reducing the federal budget. They then have to do that within a period of time. The current budget resolution instructs them to do it by January 27th. I don't think anyone believes they'll be done by then, but sometime in February or March, they'll come up with their recommendations. Those are then collated by the House and the Senate budget committees and put into legislation, budget reconciliation legislation, which is adopted then by the Congress by a simple majority vote and sent to the president. They did that in 2015 to repeal the ACA, and President Obama, of course, vetoed it. Um, The issue with budget reconciliation is that in the Senate, you can only use it for making changes in the law that more than incidentally affect the revenues and outlays of the federal government. So that could certainly uh, include the premium tax credits, the Medicaid expansion, uh, probably the individual and employer mandate. It's less likely that it could include uh, the um, guaranteed issue and and, uh, pre-existing condition, exclusion bans, ban on health status underwriting, and uh, a number of other of the insurance reform provisions of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and then the question is, can you, and also it, uh, it probably wouldn't include a number of provisions that would be needed to to replace the Affordable Care Act. Um, I mean, there's some other problems if you proceed that quickly and precipitously uh, with repeal, um, unless you have a firm and, uh, and practical replacement plan in place at the same time. Um, then uh, you really risk the collapse of the insurance markets. Insurers are at least not going to come back for 2018 to the individual market. And and this is the whole invi- individual market, not just the marketplaces. It's the stuff that farmers and ranchers and self-employed people buy all over the country. Um uh, insurers are not going to come back to that market for 2018 if they don't know what, what's going on. Um, so one problem is going to be uh, stabilizing the insurance markets until uh, you get the replace in place. And one idea that's been discussed a lot in, in uh, recent days is repeal and delay. Uh, Let's repeal it, but put off the delay for one year or two years or three years or maybe even more until we can get the replace in place. Because replacement, of course, is not simply adopting a law. It's adopting a law, uh, adopting regulations, putting out guidance, um, changing state laws. Two-thirds of the states have adopted all or part of the Affordable Care Act into state law. Uh, getting state um insurance department regulations and and, and procedures in place the IRS probably will need to set up a whole new program. Of course, all of that happened under the Affordable Care Act. And after four years, when they flipped the switch, it still wasn't ready to go. So uh, repeal and, and delay is is um, uh, what is most likely to happen. Uh, but President Trump said yesterday it's all going to happen in a
0: matter of hours. So who
2: knows? Uh, we're about ready to jump off a very high cliff.
0: Well, specifically with regard to the taxes, uh, the, the simultaneous, which I think is the, the, the word in play at the moment, or nimble, near simultaneous uh, uh, replacement. Um, I read somewhere that some um, on the far right are, uh, may be happy to actually take us to a fiscal cliff without those taxes um, and try and fix that later. Yeah. Uh, which uh, could have major impact on on the economy more generally, I would have thought.
2: Yeah, I mean, one big problem is if you do repeal and you repeal the taxes, how do you pay for replacement? And there's an idea in the budget resolution that uh, was adopted, which is to set up reserve funds where you take the money that you saved through repeal and use that money later to pay for replace, but, but that wouldn't include the taxes. So um, there's a real question as to if you repeal first and then replace, uh, where is the money going to come from for replace? Um, and one thought is that maybe it's going to come from rating the Medicare program, uh, or the Medicaid program, um, that there could be some, uh, you know, if we move to a voucher program for Medicare and then strictly limit the amount that people get for their vouchers, um, that's one way we could get a lot of money to pay for whatever they come up with for replacing the Affordable Care Act, but I think that has to be a big question, um, how how are we gonna how are we gonna pay for this if we start at the at the starting line by giving all the money back to the millionaires and the drug companies and the health insurers and the medical device companies that has been used to pay for the Affordable Care Act?
1: I was just wondering if you had any comments about the potentially deeper structural changes that might also be in the offing, for example, block grants for Medicaid.
2: Medicaid, I think, is very likely in for some changes, either block granting and and, and Medicaid, I do not follow really closely either compared to others. But uh, but the idea there is that instead of uh, having an uh, a entitlement program like we do now, where if you fit into certain categories, you're entitled to Medicaid uh, entitlement um, and coverage, and um, you... Um, uh, and, and, and uh, the states are entitled to getting a certain percentage of your uh, costs paid for by the federal government. Block granting says we're just going to give the states a certain amount. Uh, And that's all you get, and you figure out what you're going to do with it, Uh, maybe with some limits on what you can do with it. Maybe uh, it's up to you entirely. Uh, The other proposal is per capita caps, where um, the amount would be paid to a number of recipients and maybe different amounts for different categories of recipients. But the basic idea, again, is that you limit payment to the states and um, you cut federal spending on Medicaid, and the ultimate result is going to be uh, inevitably fewer people covered and uh, and worse coverage. And of course, the big problem is that Medicaid is a counter-cyclical program. So the next time we have a major recession uh, and states cannot engage in deficit spending like the federal government can, you're going to see more people needing Medicaid and at the same time fewer resources to cover them. And that's a serious problem. And I think even some of the Republican states are aware of the fact that as much as they'd love more flexibility to do what they want to do with their Medicaid programs, if you get a lot less money to cover them, flexibility may not be that great a, uh, a solution.
0: Well, if I may uh, ask one final question, Tim, um, many of the uh Folks that listen to uh, the pod are health law professors and their health law students. Um, and just as I started uh, the questioning by by noting we were sort of in the second week of class uh, how much of this should we be talking about is it a, a waste of breath to be speculating as we go through the various parts of the uh, the syllabus or uh, uh, what 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 sort of uh, advice uh, would you give to uh, both the teachers and to the students who are having to handle this sort of in in real time
2: well I think the main thing I would advise them to do is to follow my blog at uh, at Health Affairs, where I am now posting every few hours uh, a, a new post or a new update on what's going on with healthcare reform, and I intend to continue to do that into the Trump administration. Yeah, I mean, these are very challenging times. I th- I'm I, in many ways glad that I've retired from teaching, uh, because it would be very hard to keep up with everything in addition to all the work I'm doing on the blog and in, in other ways. Um, but uh, it, it's also, I would imagine, a, 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 a exciting time to be teaching health law because it's very much in uh, the public view. Uh, it's something that the students are probably reading a lot about and thinking a lot about outside of class. There's obviously some... Uh, a lot of new ideas out there. Uh, I would guess that um, in in most schools uh, students will hold some very differing opinions and of course law professors hold very differing opinions, uh, although I think the three of us are probably pretty close but um, so I think it's it's an exciting time to be in law teaching and um, a challenging time as well. Uh, but there are resources that are out there um, that uh, should continue to make teaching all this material possible.
0: And that was The Week in Health Law. A uh, big thank you to Professor Joseph for joining us. Uh, Tim, a great pleasure having you with us. Thank you for inviting me, and good to talk to both of you again. And so I'm, uh, as you've already noted, the health affairs blog uh, is where most people can find you. Uh, I don't know how you re- you write that much so often that is so good, uh, but uh, I know that we uh, we are amongst those who earnestly read it every time it pops up. We post our show notes at twill.com, and you can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Frank, where will you be reached this week? Please contact me at HealthPI on Twitter. Thank you for joining us, and have a legally interesting but healthy week.